You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast and welcome back to me. <laughs> it's wonderful to be back recording podcasts again. I've taken a few months break and I'm going to tell you why here in a little bit. It feels great to be back. Podcasting is a lot of fun. It's very helpful for me. I appreciate all the kind words I've gotten from those of you who liked the reruns of some of our best stuff over the years, and also just people who have contacted me and said that you miss me, you miss us, you miss the conversation we're having. So I, I just want to say thank you is a lot of kindness coming my way, and it, it's very appreciated. I want to kick this off by talking just briefly about the two other podcasts we did launch this year. If you've not been getting me live on this podcast, you hopefully have been getting podcast that my colleagues have been doing. Uh, Jacob Moses, our community builder, has been active in doing a podcast called It's the Little Things. You can go search for that wherever you get your podcast. You can go on our website and click on podcast on the top menu, and you will be able to get It's the Little Things podcast. Jacob has a great way of finding interesting people doing unique kind of things. And he has this very comfortable way of digging into their story, into the things they're working on, and providing some inspiration for how, if you're one of these people saying, I'd like to make my town stronger, here are people who are doing it. And every week, there's a new set of ideas, a, a new concept, a new person. At some point, someone here is going to do something or talk about something that you're struggling with too. And that's what It's the Little Things is all about. We're trying to get out in front of people the little things that are making our cities stronger, healthier, more prosperous, better places to be and to inspire you. And also to highlight you know, a lot of the great work that's going on because there is a lot of it. The other podcast I hope you've been listening to is called The Upzoned. This one is hosted by Kia Wilson, who's our communications director. Kia does all of our communications work. She's a genius and I have grown to really, really love the stuff that she does I've been on this podcast probably half the time. It's an easy, light lift for me because she sends me an article and says, this is what I want to talk about. And I just show up and we, we chat. But she puts a lot of work and effort into making this one turn out really well. She's had other guests on besides me. The podcast is called The Up Zone. It's always a deep dive into one particular topic uh, that you know, we want to get into in 20, 25 minutes. So it's a pretty quick hitting podcast. And then uh, at the end, we always do a little down zone, she calls it, where we talk about the stuff we're reading that week or the things that we're doing uh, with a Strong Towns kind of twist to it. That's a fun podcast. And I think what's fun about it, I enjoy doing it, but I also enjoy it, particularly when other people are on it. And, and Kia does that quite often. So check out the Up Zone. You're going to love it. If you like this podcast, you will like both of those. I've been gone because I've got a book coming out. The book is due out in October. It is called Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity. Uh, I've been on, working on this book since last September, and I can't tell you how excited I am 
to be doing this. I've been asked many times and in many different ways over the years to write a book. I want to say the first request came in about 2011 or 12. I was contacted by an agent who had read something that I wrote and said, you know, this is really good. You got some good thoughts here. Uh, Have you ever thought about writing a book? And I said, absolutely. Like the reason I'm writing a blog is to kind of figure some of this stuff out because I wanted to write a book and I wasn't ready. So we talked about it and he gave me some coaching and some advice and we went back and forth and I put together a book proposal and he hated it. (laughs) The actual feedback that I got was, I'm going to say this in my way. This isn't how it was said, but it's too negative. You're just talking about the problem and you don't have happy stories in it. The book needs to talk about the problem in two chapters and it needs to have like six or eight chapters of happy stories. That is totally my interpretation because I don't think it was quite that stark. But it was um, basically what the guy wanted was case studies and happy things that we could tell about cities that had figured it all out and turned it around. And here's all the good things going on that you yourself can do. He wanted solutions. If you go back and read the writing from Strong Towns around this time, I struggled mightily with this idea of solutions because the early days, early, early, early days of Strong Towns were all about defining a problem. Here's a problem. Here's what I see as a problem. Is anybody out there seeing this problem? Is this a problem or not? And kind of ripping that apart from a bunch of different angles and responding to criticisms about, you know, no, this isn't a problem or why are you even bothering with this, Chuck? And all that kind of stuff. It was essentially like establishing a problem. The pushback that I got very early on in the early days was, well, you don't have any solutions. And I struggled with this because, first of all, I felt like I was doing a huge amount of mental lifting to even see this problem. I mean, it's not a problem I was inclined to see or deal with, working in the professions that I was, doing what I was. It's kind of like one of those red pill moments where you're like, okay, everything I'm doing is wrong. How could that possibly be true? And there's a lot of like struggle with identifying the problem. The the idea of taking this leap and saying, okay, come up with a solution was really more than I could do. I couldn't contextualize it. I had a lot of these like engineering planning hangups where a solution had to be like a solution, (laughs) you know, like here's how you solve global uh, hunger, right? Here's how you solve poverty. The thing is, like, I knew that that was absurd, but I didn't really understand why it was absurd. And I didn't really have the language or the context to be able to explain the absurdity of it. But here I am being asked to write a book. And I spent most of the time in the book proposal explaining why this was a huge problem and why it was a multifaceted, complex problem. And then I probably proposed like one or two chapters at the end that said, like, I don't know how to solve this. <laughs> like, I've, I've got no idea how to fix this. But here's some good ideas, you know, form-based codes. <laughs> uh, I'm ripping on myself here now. So that proposal went nowhere. And there's another aspect of it, too, that I'll say that maybe has changed in publishing just even in the last few years. But this agent that I was working with was very, I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but was very focused on getting the book deal signed with an advance. Because the advance was how this agent, who's I know because I've researched this, is actually a really good, reputable, smart, intelligent agent. I didn't get any bad vibes from this person, and I still don't to this day. But the way that this person got paid was to get an advance. 
And to get an advance, you have to have a book that is provocative enough or interesting enough to sell, but not so crazy, insane, unwritable that it's going to bomb. In other words, and this is how I've described it, there's kind of like a pop song element to this. You don't want to be a jam band and go on and on because the market for jam bands is really small. You want to be a good pop song because a pop song is going to sell 5,000, 10,000 copies. It might, not be, it might not be memorable. It might not make a difference. It might not matter. But if you're the publisher, you're not necessarily trying to write the next thing that's going to break through. You realize that you've got to publish 400 books this year or whatever it is. And those 400 books on average, you know, have to sell 5,000, 6,000, 10,000 copies to break even. And so you can have a few that are duds and you can have a couple that are amazing, but for the most part, you got to have a lot of pop songs. You got to just fill a lot of space with a lot of stuff that is kind of guaranteed to do okay. So these two incentives became very clear to me very quickly. The agent's incentives were to get the advance and to get the advance you had to meet the publisher's incentives is to write a book that would be like a pop song. And that just ran into the reality of what I wanted to do. And so I walked away from that opportunity. Over the intervening years, I had other opportunities to do other things. Publishers that would come to me, agents that would come to me, publicists that would chat with me and point me in different directions. I found all those people very helpful. But again, the opportunities that were presented to me were not the right place at the right time. I'm going to cut everyone in that chain a lot of slack because I think I just wasn't ready to write the book. I wanted to write it my way, but I look at like what I have now written and it is very different than what I was proposing to write in 2012 and in ways that are really important. <laughs> you know, the, the book I would have written back then, not very good. This book I think is amazing. I really love it. I'm going to talk about it more in a little bit here, but I'm super jazzed and excited about it. A lot of the reason why it's different today is not only work that I've done and things that I've delved into and a, a kind of a broader set of knowledge and understanding, but also the feedback that I got from critical people along the way. Instead of trying to meet what they said, I walked away frustrated. And I actually think that frustration ultimately ended up with a better book and a, a better product. Now, some of you listening to this say, well, this is not your first book, Chuck. It's true. I have been part of four different books that you can go online and buy today. We have done at Strong Towns three different collections of essays. So we've taken our best essays from a, a certain year. I think we did 2015, 2016, and 2017. And we package those up into a book and we put that book out for sale. So we since like self-published this. And the idea was we just wanted like ways for people to get Strong Towns 101 and get up to speed quickly. When we were going out and doing events, we'd show up and people say, do you have a book to sell? And I'd be like, no, we don't. Now we do. Yes, we got a book to sell and we can do it really cheap. We're not trying to make really any money off of it as much as we're trying to get our message out. And it was a really good way to get our message out with a pretty low lift. We had already written these pieces. It was just a matter of editing them up polishing them a little bit, putting them in a book and, and putting it out there. I did write another book. I put a series together. Oh, I can't remember what year this was. It was quite a ways back now. The series was called A World-Class Transportation System. And it was a, a response to 
my governor here in Minnesota's assertion that what he wanted more than anything was a world-class transportation system. And I said, well, okay, if we were going to look seriously at that, how is this current approach not going in the right direction? And then what would it mean to actually do this and do it well? And so I put that out as like a little ebook. I think it's Kindle only if I recollect correctly, but I was just experimenting with the format, right? Um, could I put out a book? What would happen? So that's out there too. And, and that's done in the niche that we're in. Both of those, all four of those publications have done pretty well. I think they, I think they met their goal, which was to be a way to distribute our message at a very low lift to people who are interested. I think you can get that transportation book for like a buck 99. No, all this is stuff you can get for free on our website. So like we're not, <laughs> uh, it might be a little more polished. It might be a little more finished, but you know, we were not creating anything new here. The idea was um, we're going to package it up so that it can be distributed further and our, our, our message can get out further. I wrote in, I remember it was around Buffalo CNU. So I don't know when that was. I finished it up months before that. I wrote this book called Money Hall. And Money Hall was my attempt to write my stuff in a pop song. So uh, what I did is I took quotes from the Moneyball movie, which I loved, by the way, took quotes from the Moneyball movie, and I put them at the beginning of a chapter to kind of frame a conversation. And then I wrote this book that looked at how analytics were being used in baseball to change the way baseball was being done and how this same kind of mentality systematically could be used in cities to change the way we look at cities. It was a very narrow focus of a book. It was really looking at analytics and how we respond to it. There was a publisher that was interested in that book, and I sent the book to that publisher, and the book was probably 85% done when I sent it out. That publisher sent it to three different people to read. Uh, the reviews and the feedback were horrible. I would not necessarily have picked the three people who read it as being my target audience, but the publisher, that was their way of approaching it. Basically, the, the, the feedback was um, the Venn diagram between people who are A, interested in baseball analytics, and B, interested in city finance is pretty small and uh, not big enough market to do a book. Um, again, this is the pop song part of this, right? So it was a bad pop song and it wasn't going to go anywhere. And the, the Venn diagram of people who are interested in things wasn't big enough to actually sell a book. And you know what? That's probably true. Uh, so I have this book money hall that's just sitting on my hard drive that I've never done anything with. That's 85% done until now because I did recycle some of money hall for this book last fall. So August, I think, uh, September. It had to have been August because I, yeah, it was the end of August. So end of summer. I was in Pensacola, Florida, the 2019 strongest town winning city. I was in Pensacola, Florida for a meeting. And one of the people who set up this meeting also set up to have a book publisher there. This is a friend who had been nudging me to write a book. And I take those nudges seriously. I'm like, nice. Okay. I agree with you, but it was not front burner for me at that point in time. And in the midst of this meeting, uh, this friend of mine had set up to have this book publisher from Wiley and sons publishing there. 
it kind of, I will say, annoyed me because I was there for this other meeting and all of a sudden this other person was there and the topics just went in a different direction what I wanted them to go because all of a sudden we're talking about book publishing and you know the like, and that's not what I was there for. In retrospect, it was the nicest, like devious thing this person has ever done. Uh, because in the course of this conversation, the person from Wiley became interested in me and interested in a potential book from me. When I got done with the meeting, then the Wiley person exited halfway through the meeting. Uh, when I got done with my meeting, I actually went back to the airport and here's this guy from Wiley sitting on the same plane as me in the terminal waiting to get on the plane. We started chatting and he told me, I'd love a book from you. Why don't you put together a proposal? I said, well, you know, I've been down that route before. It takes a lot of time and energy is I just want a three page. Just tell me what you want to do, write it up and we'll do it. Um, so I did, it was pretty quick. It was pretty dirty. I had an outline. I had a lot of thoughts. I basically converted that over. I put together, you know, a few other things that I thought were important and relevant to our movement and our conversation at strong towns and sent it over. And I heard back really, really quickly. Yes, we want to do this. And not only yes, do we want to do this, but I'm going to send you a contract like tomorrow or the next day. And I, I got that. And all of a sudden I got this book contract in front of me to sign. The contract said, you know, cause I put in my proposal, when could you deliver a book? And I said, March 1st by March 1st. So this is like <laughs> after Labor Day, like the first week of September. So this is uh, uh, September, October, November, December, four months, uh, January, February, two more months. That's six months. I said, I, I can put this book together in six months. They sent me a proposal said by April 1st, uh, kind of went through a whole bunch of different things that I'd never pondered before about writing a book. It was like a 14 page contract that I was signing. I was on one hand like, really excited about this. This is a big deal and not only a big deal, but a big deal from a major U S publisher, you know, an organization that specializes in serious nonfiction works uh, an organization that could distribute my book to a lot of places that I would never be able to do on my own or, or really be able to do with, with maybe a different publisher. This seemed like a great deal. I sent it around to some friends of mine, some people who have long advised me. The feedback I got was, your instincts are in the right place. Go for it. So I did. I signed this contract in uh, September. I am a very methodical kind of person, especially on things like this. I have, <laughs> I feel like in life I'm advancing things on like 20 different fronts, but they're all very intentional. So I write down a plan, like here's what I plan to do next and here's my next plan. And when I have like urgent deadlines, I'll say, here's when I got to be done with this and this and this. And so I sat down and I had this book outline and I wrote down, uh, here's my 10 chapters. Here's the date by which each needs to be done to keep me on task and on track and I'm going to go forth and write this book. And I started writing. And by the end of September, I had one chapter done. And by the end of October, I had two and a half more. By the time we got to Thanksgiving, I was, I was just moving right along. I had kind of blocked off this chunk of time in December that I was going to make a lot of progress. For those of you that have been with us a while know, we tend to dial things down in December December was the end of a long stretch of me being on the road, doing a lot of speaking engagements and kind of dialing things down in September as a way to um, kind of recoup, refocus, catch up on things that get 
you know, left behind when you're on the road and not able to do the day to day. So December is like our catch up time. And I had planned a lot of catch up during December. And by the time I got to December, I was actually a little bit behind what my schedule was. December went horrible. <laughs> it went horrible for a bunch of reasons in terms of my writing. De- December was beautiful. I did not make nearly as much progress as I wanted to. There were some things I had to do here at Strong Towns that took a lot of time. All of this writing that I've done is taking place you know, between the hours of like 11 p.m. and 3 a.m. I'm still doing my job. I'm still doing traveling. I'm still doing all the stuff here I do at Strong Towns. You know, so my writing was taking place in these weird hours, and I just wasn't keeping up at this point. So when we got to January, it was clear to me that I was not going to meet my March deadline, let alone the publisher's April deadline, unless I kicked it down. I had a board meeting that first week of January, and we sat down and we talked about this. And I'm like, look, guys, I'm willing to put in you know, 50 plus hours a week doing this. But if I got to get this book done and the book is really important to the movement and the book is really important to the organization and the book is going to be one of these catalyst things that's going to get our message in front of a lot of people, something's got to give. And I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. And we talked about it. We went over and over. And what the board said, my bosses uh, said, you got to cut out the podcast. The podcast has got to go. Do some reruns for a few months and get this darn book done. I actually fought that. I'm like, I can't do that. I can't, I can't do that. Uh, there's a whole bunch of reasons. Like, we'll lose momentum on the podcast, da-da-da. Nope. Uh, the board said, you, you have to do it. That's what you have to do. I came around to their point of view. We went ahead and did that. It's amazing because the podcast numbers continue to grow month after month after month, even despite not having new episodes since mid-December. But it gave me the capacity to get this book done. I finished the book the first week of March. Uh, I took the rest of March to go on spring break and not think about it and then got back and did a bunch of editing and got the final version uh, over to the publisher by the end of uh, like a few days before the deadline. Uh, They were thrilled. Everybody was happy. I was nervous because I am at this point, I love what I've written. And I know there is this trap as a writer, as someone who's doing something artistic and creative that you fall in love with your own work and you get prickly about how it is edited and changed. I was worried about this pop song problem because I've written something that is not a pop song. I've written something that is interesting. I think reads fluidly, reads well. It's got a lot of stories in it. I think it's going to be very compelling to non-technical people as well as people who are interested in the technical part. But it's not a pop song and I'm not writing a pop song and I didn't set out to write a pop song. I was very nervous that the editing process was going to try to reduce what I think are some really deep, complex thoughts into a pop song. And guess what? I heard back from the editor this week who said, no, this is great. I, she actually said, I'm not going to have any changes. I'm like, any changes? Because I, I hope there's some. I know my writing's not perfect. I'm sure there'll be some wording and language changes. Uh, but basically... Uh, what I've written is good and they don't want to rewrite it. There's nothing where they read it and go, nope, can't, can't do that. Uh, no, this is not good. No, this has to change. So I'm done. I've got a book to them. I'm going to have a little bit of cleaning up around the edges to do. This book is coming out in October. There's a whole process now to get it done, get it out, get it 
finalized and printed and published and distributed. I've gone through a list this week of 250 different uh, media outlets that we're going to try to send advanced copies to. Uh, we've got lists of, uh, of not only media outlets, but other places that we're sending copies to, to do the advanced kind of PR work. Uh, this turned into a big, big deal. And this thing's going to happen. This thing is going to happen. Let me talk about a couple little things. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through and I'm going to give you, I've not done this in any other place. I didn't do this on the site. Didn't do this in any announcement. I'm going to give you the chapters. I'm going to tell you like what I wrote. I'm going to give you an outline of what I wrote, like a teaser, okay? Let me go into a couple of quick things first. First, one of the advice that I got from people, agents and publishers and others who you know, want me to write a book, their feedback was always, if you're going to be a successful author, what you write, you're not going to make any money on. Like, don't plan on being an author as in, this is your income. Plan on being an author as in, what you're doing is going to advance other things in your life. I think that that is a hard sell for other people. I think that's a hard sell for other people who write and want to write and are not interested in the other things. For me, it was the opposite because the writing for me has always been like the mechanism to do something else. For me, this book has become this vehicle to take Strong Towns to the next level. How do we grow Strong Towns, the movement, to not be 3,000 people but to be 10,000 people? How do we not reach 2 million people next year? How do we reach 5 million people or 8 million people? And for me, this book is the mechanism to do that. It's the deep thing that will not only allow us to kind of reach that next level of, this word has come to my brain and I don't feel like this is the exact right way to describe this, but bear with me a little bit, be generous to me. I feel like this book is gonna allow us the ability to kind of penetrate the cultural consciousness in a way that we're incrementally building up to, I think this is going to propel that. I think this is going to accelerate that, jumpstart that, put us in a different place. And I say that because we have millions of readers. It's insane how many people read our stuff. I, I'm, I find it crazy. But there is something about having a book by a major publisher that then changes the people who will read your stuff, the people who will share your stuff, the people who will promote your things, it creates, and I don't want to say credibility because I, I don't feel more credible having a book than not having a book. I also don't think that having a book by a, a Wiley and Sons kind of publisher means that my ideas are worthy where they're not before. Or let me flip that around. I don't think just because you don't have a publishing deal makes your ideas unworthy, but in terms of like the barred entry, it sure lowers the bar a lot. If we're going to have Strong Down's ideas on CNN and in the New York Times, having a book out by a major publisher, let me go to the next step, having a book that sells well and gets on best-selling lists, all of those things are huge in terms of us taking the next step and getting our message out. So that was a, like a very easy sell for me in terms of making this book something that propels the organization forward. The other thing I wanted to bring up in terms of strategy internally to Strong Towns and the Strong Towns movement is that we're planning a book tour. If you go to the website right now, on the homepage, there's a link up at the top to Strong Towns, the book. If you go on that, it tells you where you can get the book. 
you can pre-order. It's, it's available right now by pre-order. Like you can, as you're listening to right now, go to wherever you buy books and you can buy this book. You're not going to get it till October 1st, but you can buy the book. Right now, it's for sale. My mom bought it. I thought that was really cool. But on that same page, you can go and you can uh, sign up to get information about the Strong America Tour. You can sign up to be a stop on the tour. Although I'm going to give you a little bit of where we're at with that right now so you kind of have some context. We put out a couple months ago to our members a just an announcement that this book was in the works and coming. Um, we didn't really want to announce it widely until people could actually buy it. Um, but we did like a pre-announcement to, we'll just call it the inside group. Um, and part of that was because the inside group, very committed people in the movement, people who have donated, send us money, share our stuff, are, are working on Strong Town. I mean, this is like, you know, the members, the core supporters. We wanted to make sure that any of those places that they're in that wanted to be part of this book tour had kind of a a real clear path to getting that in. We wanted to be able to take the time and, and chat with them and map out this book tour. Then when we did the announcement, we kind of had a rough sense of where some of the places that we are going to go would be. And when we announced the book, we also announced the tour and asked people if they wanted to, uh, to be involved in that. I was thinking we were going to get 25, 30 requests for a book tour stop. I think we're approaching 200 now. Uh, we were at uh, 170 like right away. I think we hit 180. It's crazy. We map these all up and they are literally everywhere, everywhere. And so what we have done is we've kind of mapped out the places where we're trying to go and trying to get to to go and do a, an event around the book. It will not be a curbside chat or not be a workshop. It's not going to be like any of the events we've done in the past. We've come up with a different kind of format. We're going to do a little bit of an introduction to Strongtown's principles, a little bit of reading and excerpt from the book. Um, we've got an audience kind of voting thing. So it's kind of turning into a choose your own adventure kind of thing where we're like, here's eight different topics we can delve into. Which one of these would this audience like to do a deep dive in? So we're going to do a deep dive. We've got a little segment to highlight some things locally. So here's some of the great work that's going on locally to build strong towns and get people connected to each other. We're doing a little bit of a book signing. Uh, We've got media that is surrounding this. So we've got some advanced media work we're doing. We also have some follow-up media work we're doing. We're putting together a book about the tour and the different places, trying to highlight some great things that are happening in America today to build strong towns principles. And then as part of this, we're using it as a, a fundraiser of sorts. When I go do an event and I'm not the one uh, deep, deep into this, but Michelle, our pathfinder uh, fields, all these requests, events and event revenue is about 40% of how we fund strong towns, the organization. When I go out and speak somewhere, I will get paid for that. The organization gets paid for that. And what we've been able to do by stringing a whole bunch of places together is to knock that price in half and some places in three-fourths just to be able to go in and do these events. So our idea is how can we use this book, use a book tour to get our message out in as many places as we can, reach as many people as we can, and do it at a price point that is easy for people to get into and helps us justify or be able to fund all this time and energy we're putting into this part of getting the message out. 
if you want to be part of the Strong America Tour, we already now have kind of nine regions we're working on uh, for the rest of this year. The idea was that we would run this tour September through beginning of December. Now we have added like five more regions in 2020. So we're looking at expanding this into January, February, March. You know, how far do we go with this? I don't know. If you want to be part of that, go to strongtowns.org. On the top, like I said, the top menu, there's a link to Strong Towns, the book. On that page, there's a place to sign up to be part of the Strong America Tour. You can either sign up to say, I want to be informed. I want to stay informed. I want to know when you're around. Or if you want to sponsor a stop, if you want us to stop in your place, if you don't have resources, but you want us to be in your community, let us know. We're doing everything we can to try to string as many of these together as we can. We're trying to reach as broad a cross-section of the country as we can. So, so go and get signed up and we will do what we can to make it happen. Like I said, nine areas, nine regions have already, we've kind of already kind of started to coalesce around, have reached out to people, started to have conversations and started to put some pins on the map. As soon as those are a little more firmed up, we're going to start releasing dates and places and regions. I'm so excited. I'm so Oh, I'm so amazingly excited to share this with you and, and to get out and to really to really share the Strong Towns message. We're entering into, and you get a little bit of it, but it's going to grow in intensity as this year goes on. And then certainly next year will be crazy. We're entering into another one of these dysfunctional election seasons, times when we, instead of focusing on each other, we start to focus on the other. Instead of focusing on what we can do to make our neighborhoods and our places better, we start to focus on these centralized systems and these centralized things and what is the solution that someone else has. I get that. I understand that. I'm not trying to demean anybody for sliding into that. I'm sure I will to a degree, even though I've really tried to structure my life to resist that. I get it. I would like to be and have our conversation be an antidote of sorts for that dysfunction. If you want to take charge of your place, if you want to build a strong town, if you want to make your community financially strong and resilient, if you want to make it more prosperous, a better place to live, if you want to make it a more just place to be, here's some strategies to help you. Here's a way to understand the problems that's different than what you're going to hear in this crazy election cycle. Here's a different way to look at the things you're being told. Here's a different way to move ahead with things so that you can take action yourself and make things better. Amidst all the craziness that we're being subjected to, all the dysfunctional conversation, I'm not pretending that, you know, well, we're the sole ray of hope. There's a lot of people out there doing a lot of great things, but this book, this tour, this series of events and talks and community conversations, uh, we really want it to be an antidote to this craziness. Here's how you can take charge of your place and make it into a strong town. Now, let me, uh, let me go through the chapters. I got, I got 10 chapters here and I'm really excited about it. I'm just going to read you the chapter names and give you like, a, I don't know, a real brief overview of which one. The first one, might be my favorite chapter in the whole thing. It's called Human Habitat. And it talks about how 
what we live in, we often look at as different than like nature. We often look at ourselves as like apart from nature, but we are humans. We are evolved uh, chimpanzees. Um, We're evolved mammals. And we've evolved in a very unique way that doesn't make us separate. It makes us separate in some ways, but it also makes us very alike. Other creatures and other creatures we intuitively grasp have habitat that fits them, that works for them, that they're well adapted to. We could not take a whale and put them in a desert because the habitat in a desert is not conducive to being a whale. We could not take a California condor and put it in the Arctic and expect it to do well. These are two very different habitats and species very well adapted to their habitats. Bees are well adapted to a beehive. If we went in and said, you know what, I think bees, uh, for reasons of economic growth and development, and, and just because this is what bees would like, we're going to make a bunch of strode in this beehive and give each bee their little cul-de-sac to live in isolation from each other. We would not expect the beehive to operate long. When we look at the places that we live as humans, when we think of it as human habitat, we look at it differently. We think about it differently. We understand how it relates to us differently than when we look at it as just some kind of rote mechanical thing that we built. That's the first chapter. And I said I was going to give a short summary. That was like a five-minute summary. (laughs) Uh, um, the second chapter is called Incremental Growth, and it just gets into this notion of here's how human habitats grow and change and evolve. Here's how complex adaptive systems grow and change and evolve, and here's how this applies to human habitat. The third chapter is called An Infinite Game. It gets into this idea from Money Hall that actually people who read Money Hall hated but I thought was so central that I, I couldn't drop it. It took me a long time to figure out how to talk about this. In Money Hall, I talked about it as uh, cities win by not losing. And that evolved into this concept of an infinite game. If you think of a game that has a beginning and an end, you keep score and there's a certain strategy in it. But if you think of a game that is ongoing, think of like a baseball game that doesn't end after nine innings, but just continues to go on and on and on with no ending, the game evolves to be something different. When we look at cities as a game with a beginning and an end, we do all kinds of really irrational, silly things. When we look at them as an ongoing eternal game, a game that is never supposed to end, it changes how we look at things. It changes how we perform our tasks, how we intuit what we should do, and and really how we relate to each other. The fourth chapter is called The Infrastructure Cult. And those of you that have been around here for a while know what that is. I start the chapter with a bunch of quotes from high-profile people that will make you laugh, uh, made me laugh, made some other people laugh when they read it. It's all about how we have evolved and why we have evolved this cult of infrastructure. The fifth chapter is called Growth or Stability. It's about the trade-off between the two and how we have created a macro economy fixated on growth. Part of the trade-off of that is that we've sacrificed local stability. If we want local stability, we have to look at uh, sacrificing some of our macro growth. And I get in deep into that trade-off and what that means and, and how we uh, should think about that. The sixth chapter then is called Rational Responses. And if you've watched a curbside chat, I spend a little bit of time on this. Uh, this is my answer to the solutions question 
uh, Chuck, what is the solution? And in rational responses, I spend probably far too many words explaining why there is no solution. And to think there's a solution is to misunderstand the very essence of the problem we've created. When we think about human habitat, we're talking about something that emerges and solutions or what we would call responses or strategies or way to deal with things are the harmonizing of many competing objectives and they will themselves emerge, adapt and change over time. And so when we go looking for solutions, we're doing the wrong thing and we're misdiagnosing the actual challenge. When we understand the challenges, human habitat and complex adaptive systems, then we can start to respond to them and essentially emerge successful responses. Chapter seven is then productive places that gets into the work of Joe Minicozzi and how we identify land use development patterns that are financially productive and successful. If we're going to have successful places, here's one way we can start to measure them. And here's what that measurement tends to correlate with in terms of success. Chapter eight is making strong investments. If we want to have prosperity emerge in our places, how do we go about changing our capital investment approach? That's a fancy way of saying, how do we spend our collective dollars uh, so that prosperity emerges, so that we're creating systems with good feedback and good response so that ultimately the success that we're looking for emerges as a result of our actions. Chapter nine, then, I call place-oriented government. And I'm really proud of how I, I was able to take some of the stuff from Money Hall and adapt it here because there were, there were some really, I think, insightful things in Money Hall that I was in the frame of mind to grasp then that I'm really not today. And being able to go back and read that and pull some of those things over were really powerful because I, I worked for many, many years intimately with government as part of government. I was a consultant to many, many different cities and a very intimate staff level. And I got kind of a, a sixth sense of how governments operate. I've been away from that for a little bit, and my relationship with governments has been a lot different the last few years. So some of that kind of sixth sense has dulled a little bit. Going back into Money Hall and pulling some of that forward just reminded me of a lot of things, and I was able to kind of format stuff in a way that I think is going to be really helpful for people. It, it talks about how government can change and needs to change to nurture these self-emergent successful systems as opposed to directing things, how do we become servants of it? And then the last chapter I call an intentional life. I think there might be some of you who will read the last chapter and say, this should have been the first chapter, but I put it last and I put it last for a reason. I say right up front in this chapter, like these are things that I am not an expert in. I'll give you one example, obesity. I'm not an expert in it. I can tell you, and I write a little bit about this you know, in the book, I can tell you that when I went and spent six weeks in Italy, I lost 20 pounds. And it wasn't because I didn't eat a ton. I ate a gargantuan amount of food. It's because I walked everywhere. I walked all the time. I walked every day, all over the place. You know, when I moved from the cul-de-sac out in the far edges of town, into the middle of town. And I started walking to the office. I started walking to the store and I started riding my bike all over. I started just being more active. I, I, when I substituted my driving trips for walking trips, I became thinner, healthier, even though I was, I was still eating a lot. I'm not suggesting, and I, I say this very clearly in this chapter, that I'm like an expert on obesity. I'm also not suggesting that 
you know, having walkable neighborhoods will cure obesity. I don't make that claim. But when we talk about human habitat and balancing and harmonizing many competing objectives, it's clear to me that this would, you know, I assert that I think in many ways this would make it the job of fighting obesity easier. There's a lot of things like that. And in the 10th chapter, I talk about if we want to live intentional lives of, of purpose and meaning, how do we build habitat around us that brings that to the fore? Right now, today, many of us have to fight our habitat in order to experience lives of meaning. And exercise is a good example of this. We have to fight the habitat we're in. We have to fight our inclinations if we want to exercise. If you want to exercise, you got to get up early. You got to go to the gym. You got to have a gym membership. You got you, you, all these different things you have to do. I look back at like my ancestors and they just walked everywhere. Like the idea of having a, a, a treadmill you would go and walk on uh, would have been ludicrous to them because they just walked all day. If we want to live in places where we can intentionally be human, uh, what would that look like? What would that feel like? And, and how does Strong Towns help get us there? That's my book. That's my book. And like I said, I'm thrilled to share it with you. I wish I could publish it right now. There's a process I have to go through. I think that's only going to make it better. It's only going to get it in more hands and get it in more places. My hope for you, you know, our podcast listeners, the people who have been with us a long time, the people who are passionate about this message the way I am, uh, that you're going to find this not only like a good read for you, but it's going to be one of those things that you're like, I got to share this with someone else. I got to get this for this person. I need this person to read it. I want people to go to this presentation. I want people to, to you know, be at a tour event. I want to watch the video. I want to share this with people. That's my hope. I am trying to empower you to be able to take that next step for sharing our message. That's what this book and the tour and all this is about. So let me just finalize this podcast by saying again, thank you. Thank you for your patience over the last few months with my absence. It wasn't because I was off doing uh, nothing. I was working very, very hard on this kind of collective thing we're all working on together. I hope that that time off was put to good use and will end up to be something that is going to benefit us all. I thank you for everything that you've done to share our message with others and to talk about Strong Towns, particularly as it relates to your neighborhood and your block and your community. I thank you, people that have become members of Strong Towns, for your support and the resources that you've given us to get this message in front of more people. It's the capacity that you've given us that has allowed us to reach this stage where we can make this kind of big leap and grow our movement. And that's, that's always been my promise to you. And uh, that will continue to be my promise is that we're going to grow this movement and make it more and more impactful every day. And uh, just for everybody else out there who's just curious about what we're doing at Strong Towns, curious about how these ideas apply to your life curious about how you can uh, make your town stronger. I just want to thank you for that curiosity. I just want to thank you for being here and being part of our conversation. It's April of 2019. This is going to be a very impactful, meaningful year for us. I'm so excited to be here right now with you. Again, welcome back. I look forward to many, many conversations in the coming months as uh as we delve not only into this book, but into all the fascinating things that are going on 
within and around the Strong Towns conversation. You take care, everybody, and keep doing what you can to build Strong Towns. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.